Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in all our hearts be acceptable to you, our strength, our song, and our salvation. Amen. The truest thing that I know is that I love my children. Perhaps the second truest thing I know, however, is that sometimes I have gotten just the teensiest little bit frustrated and upset at them. <laughs> this is the secret, often uncomfortable truth of parenting. We get angry with our children. And you might have heard in today's scripture that God, our divine parent, who loves us beyond measure, can feel the same way. We can completely lose our cool at these little beings who have entered our lives and whom we love with every fiber of our being. And this is true of even the most even-handed, kind-hearted, deliberately nonviolent of parents. One morning, I showed up at a meeting with the Christian education director at the church where I was pastor, and I was completely hoarse. When she asked if I was okay, I had to admit that I wasn't sick, but that the day before I had been driving my kids somewhere, and they were driving me so crazy that I had screamed at them until I had no more voice. It was not my finest hour. Parents, get angry. Sometimes we get angry out of protectiveness, when our children run into the street or disappear from our sight, or try to plug the cat's tail into the electrical outlet. The mama bear can rise up in us in an instant when we see our child being bullied or being a bully to another. We get angry out of exhaustion, from the tedium of hearing, but why, for the seven zillionth time? Or when our toddler or teenager, or adult child for that matter, decides that the rules we have put in place for their good don't apply to them. Sometimes, unfortunately, we are angry and fearful about other things, like the state of the world, or the state of our marriage, or the state of our bank account, and our children bear the brunt. Two weeks after the 9-11 attacks, I was taking my kids to a small airport in New York to pick up my husband from Seattle, where he had taken a new job on September 14th. We were joining him there in a few more weeks, but for the time being, I was working and solo parenting in Connecticut, an hour away from ground zero, while the world felt upside down. We got to the airport almost out of gas. Tom's flight was late in arriving, and due to security measures newly in place, we were told that we couldn't wait in the arrivals area but had to keep circling the lot. And did I say we were almost out of gas? So when one of the kids decided that was the time to say, I'm starving, I lost it. You are not starving, I yelled. Use words that mean what you say. 
to a five and a seven-year-old who had been in the car for an hour and hadn't seen their father in two weeks. What was I thinking? If I had been thinking rather than reacting out of fear and anger and exhaustion, I would have said that I loved them more than all the world and things are a little rough right now and here's a bag of goldfish. Instead, what came out was an accusatory explosion which broke my heart almost as much as it must have broken theirs. If you ever want to feel seen as a parent who has at some point blown up at your beloved child and immediately regretted your outburst, take a look at an article by Anne Lamott called Mother Rage, Theory and Practice, published when her son was about eight. Or for that matter, you could look no further than the passage from Hosea that Steve read. There is a parent's inner dialogue at its most raw and real. The intimate, heart-wrenching love, the rage, the despair, the grief, the sense of betrayal, the utter fatigue at giving, 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 and getting rejected in return, the momentary readiness to wipe your hands of this relationship and call it quits, Hosea reminds us that even God gets angry at God's children. When the preaching team gathered in June to look ahead at the scriptures through this month, we commented that all the passages for today, not all of which we read, but all of them describe trying behavior on the part of God's people, generation after generation. And yet, while God's anger threatens God keeps offering new expressions of love and hope that the people will finally come to their senses and embrace the wholeness God offers. Psalm 107, which we didn't read, begins with the line, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for God is good. God's steadfast love endures forever. And then it proceeds with the lengthy recitation of the times that God's children put God's patience to the test with periodic returns to that first line as a reminder of just how much God's steadfast love has had to endure. One of the other preachers said, it's like God keeps living the movie Groundhog Day, waking up each morning to the same headlines of mass shootings the same war crimes, the same injustices, the same greed and selfishness, the same lust for power, the same tedious annoyances, and yet, though maybe through clenched teeth, God's steadfast love goes out into each new day to endure again. Out of protectiveness, out of love, out of horror when God's children are being bullied or mistreating others, God's anger throughout scripture is still a signal of God's love, a sign that things are not as they are meant to be, but that there is hope for change. The prophets like Hosea are frequently the messengers of God's anger meant to warn the people of disastrous consequences if they continue on their current path. Now I need to pause here because this is a sticky point. There are theologies that for centuries 
have leaned heavily on the idea of God's anger at sin as rationale for the worst forms of exclusion and punishment. There are churches still today who use fear of God's wrath as a weapon for enforcing confining and often dangerous beliefs and behaviors. And partly because of this historical misreading and misuse of the stories of God and God's children, there are people, alas, who justify harmful words and behavior by saying it is just an expression of love. If you have suffered from any of that, I am sorry, and I am glad you have found this church where truly we not only believe, but we lift up daily the truth that whoever you are and wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. I want to say this in no uncertain terms and with confidence in the God who is most fully described throughout scripture by the word hesed, that steadfast love and faithfulness that shows up again and again and again in Psalm 107. Love does no harm. Love does no harm which is not to say that love is always all rainbows and unicorns. While love does no harm, it can be painful both to give and to receive. It hurts beyond measure to watch a loved one succumb to addiction or lies or illness or selfishness. Love can seethe with rage when you see someone torn apart by bullets or bullies or injustice. It hurts to hear your beloved tell you hard truths or to be the one telling such truths. Just as physical healing sometimes mean the, means the pain of invasive surgery or antiseptic that stings or tearing off a Band-Aid, the kind of tough love that seeks to heal what ails our spirits and our relationships sometimes involves hard and painful confrontations. That is the basic message of Hosea not only in words, but in his family life, in the decades immediately preceding Israel's conquest and captivity by Assyria, Hosea was called to proclaim that Israel's idolatry, the way they were turning to things as gods and treating people as things, would lead to their destruction. Hosea's call was to marry Gomer, a prostitute, so that their marriage would be a living sign of God's love for Israel, even though Israel kept turning away and giving its allegiance to Canaanite fertility gods instead. Through Hosea's embodied prophecy, God speaks as both a spurned lover and as a distraught parent. Hosea voices both tender memories of their intimate relationship and angry tirades at how Israel has rejected God's love and is going to suffer the consequences. And then there are those heart-wrenching moments where God stops almost in mid-sentence as if to say, what was I thinking? How can I give you up 
O Ephraim, how can I hand you over, Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God's anger is restrained by God's love. Despite Israel's repeated rejection of God's overtures, God's love never gives up. Now, that's not necessarily the first thought you might have had in hearing the parable from Luke as God calls out, you fool. In response to someone in the crowd asking Jesus to help him get his family's inheritance, Jesus sees the greed behind the question and offers this parable for his listeners to ponder their priorities. Though typically in Jesus' parables, God is more obliquely referred to as a ruler or a vineyard keeper or a landowner, here, Jesus names God as a character in their own right and an unhappy one at that. And what is the impetus for God's angry outburst, calling the rich man a mindless fool? Listen again to the wealthy man's self-talk. And this is from the New Revised Standard Version. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He, himself, I, I, my, he, I, I, my, I, my, my, I, my soul, my soul, you, every statement, and essentially a third of the actual words this rich man uses are self-referential. And his end goal is complete selfishness. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. What was he thinking? Only of his full belly and storage bins. So here's a few questions for him. Who was working this rich man's property so that it produced abundantly? Who actually built those first barns? And who would do the work to tear them down and build larger ones? What good are crops stored up for many years, especially when people probably very close by were indeed starving? Who would serve the feast this rich man wanted to eat so he could be eating and drinking and merry? And who would clean up after? There is nary another soul in sight as far as this guy is concerned. Richard Swanson, who's the author of a commentary on Luke, writes, this random rich guy's basic misunderstanding is that he can't see the people who are actually doing all the work. Jesus tells us that this is a story about greed, but if that is true, then greed is not an inner desire, a coveting, or anything like that. 
Greed comes down to not seeing the people who are doing all the work. Greed, therefore, is its own form of idolatry, treating possessions as though they both have and confer ultimate value, while treating people as possessions, replaceable commodities, irrelevant and disposable things. And when God's children disregard the needs, or indeed even the personhood, the life, the soul of others, and act as though our worth comes from the things we hold on to, rather than from the one whose steadfast love holds us all, well, that provokes God's anger. And so God, in this story, exhausted, frustrated, grieved, and angered by this man's selfish ramblings, stops him in mid-sentence. You fool, God says, which is a hard truth. The word means literally mindless, senseless, thoughtless, as in, what were you thinking? And then, as the prophets did, God confronts the landowner with the consequences of his actions. Tonight, your life will be required of you. And what earthly good are all those things? But here is the love behind that story of God's anger and the hope for truly abundant life squirreled away among all those piles of things. Though the life of the landowner in the story is being asked of him that night, the life of the man who asked Jesus to help get his inheritance is still open-ended. He still has time to make different choices about what he values, how he treats others, whether he chooses to notice the people who are doing all the work. Jesus offers this parable for his listeners both then and now to ponder our priorities. Jesus ends his story with a hard question and deliberately leaves it without an answer so that his listeners will carry it with them and let it shape their own lives. And so following Jesus' lead, today I would leave us with a few questions to shape the thoughts of our heart in the week and weeks to come. What is the truest thing that you know? Where have we mixed up our priorities or been thought less of others? How can we show our gratitude for the abundance God has already granted us? Here's a tough one. Where have we tried God's patience? And last, how has God's steadfast love already patiently dealt with us? And how can we extend that enduring love to others, whether they are our children or God's other children? Friends, may our thoughtfulness as we ponder these questions together enable us to be rich toward God, who is slow to anger and abounding 
in steadfast love. Amen.